it's verbal judo. She yeah. uh, she's the best interviewee on the planet. There's nobody does interviews like Dolly. I'm a very I'm very outspoken politically, but I try not to I try not to talk Dolly ticks at all. Anyway, so we're getting ready to go. We're just waiting here in the wings. Gotcha. Then we're going to go get in the car. I'm excited about that. Ask me whatever you ask me, and I'm going to tell you what I want you to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Chad Abumrad. This is Dolly Barnes America, Episode 5, Dollitics. Hat tip to Brian Sievert, Dolly's nephew and bodyguard, for coining the term. We begin this episode in London, in room 327 at the Savoy Hotel. Yeah. Well, they actually changed it. Oh, they did. Just a few minutes before Dolly is supposed to walk the red carpet for the premiere of 9 to 5, the musical. 9 to 5, if you don't know, massive film from 1980 about three women who rise up against their sexist, egotistical boss, spawned one of the great political anthems of our time. I'll go into all that later. For the moment, just know it's being revived as a musical in London. That's why we're here. How are you feeling about everything so far? Oh. It's exciting. I'm really more excited than anything because yeah. I haven't seen it all. I mean, I've been working with them, writing new stuff and putting things together, but I'm just excited to see the new cast yeah. and to hear the new songs, how they work. It's, I, I, have, I can feel the energy of the event, and so it's hard for me to even focus. Outside the hotel? It's mayhem. Can we clear the backboard just for the protocol? Not only are thousands of people waiting for Dolly to emerge, but all weekend long, all throughout London... There have been protests. I guess they're protesting in some kind of fashion, something, and then the environment. I guess there's thousands of people out in the streets doing other things. So it goes to show you there's a life within the life, a world within yeah. other worlds. And so they just tell us, okay, well, if we if we get blocked off because of the protesters, we go in this other door, we go around this side of the building. So my security people, they've scout all that out. They know everything that's going on. They're very aware of everything. But it, it's kind of exciting, all that energy, everybody here for different reasons. Inside the room. Accommodate everybody. It's a spooky mix of energies. Yeah. Dolly's team, led by Danny Nazelle, her manager, are zipping around like all electric. Dolly. Now I have to sign some autographs. See, it never ends. Yeah. Totally chill. It's never out. It's never over. It's going on all the time. Gotcha. Danny uh, brings in some posters with her face on it that she's supposed to sign before the show. I'm going to capture the sound of your pen. Okay, well, I don't know if this is going to show on that. <laughs> that don't even make a noise on this. Danny, that's not a good one. My hair colored that one out. Would you like a black sharpie for that? It's too late now. Go time. We're walking down the hall. I guess we're on our way to the red carpet. Now we're going to go down, get in the car, because we have to drive around to the red carpet, to the front, front of the building. Dolly hums her way down the hall, her... Her dress has all of these glass beads on it that swish back and forth musically as she walks and she hums to the rhythm of their swishing. She's flanked by, I don't know, 12 men, many of whom have very big guns. Hello. Come on. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. It's going down. Where are you going now? We all crowd into this tiny elevator. Where there's a middle-aged British couple who happen to be standing there and are Totally stunned. It's a special weekend for me. It's my birthday weekend. Oh, so, happy yeah. birthday. Thank you. Yeah. 
Okay, we hop into a black SUV and drive literally halfway around the block from one side of the hotel to the other where the red carpet is. No, you're going to get on my side, but i got to get up before you. We're on a time frame. Gotcha. If you hear the mask questions, you're welcome to... All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. And if you decide to ask one right in the middle of that, I'll answer you too. Again, icy calm. Oh my God, look at all these people. You ready? Are you ready for me? Yep. Ready. Two thousand people go bonkers. She steps out onto the red carpet. Hello, darling. Hey. How you doing? Good hey. to see you. She starts to feel questions. Why, why is the show still so relevant? Well, I think we've made a good point when we did it 40 years ago. We did a lot of good. What kind of modern resonance do you think this story has for modern audience now? I mean, the women in work is a, it's a different world yeah, yeah. now. So how, you, how modern do you think this story is? Yeah, well, I think fine. it's as relevant now as it was before. And in a way, with the new Me Too movement, I think this is really a good time for it. People That's ask her what advice does she have for working women. So much. A lot of other questions related to workplace harassment, which was a big part of the original 9 to 5, but very quickly, the questions broaden out. So at the moment in the UK, we're, we've got Brexit looming. Have you got any dolly advice to help the UK get through? We can't hardly even take care of our own problems, unless let's try to solve yours. <laughs> Several reporters ask her about Brexit. We're going through a very funny time here in Britain at the moment one with Brexit, with people being very frustrated, very angry. She gets asked about climate change. What does she think about the protests that are sweeping London? She spends about four minutes swatting all those questions away. But then, maybe about 10 steps and 20 questions in, something shifts. I couldn't tell what was going on at the time, but all of a sudden Dolly's security detail snapped into a tight circle around her. I was caught in the middle, actually started to feel like I couldn't breathe. And then the whole circle started moving really fast. I'd find out later, when I spoke with Brian, Dolly's head of security, that what was actually happening in that moment was that a guy with a knife had rushed the red carpet. Somebody had tackled him, disarmed him. Then the rest of the security guys had made a circle around Dolly, which I was inadvertently in the middle of. And then they whisked her away from the red carpet and in the process ejected me out onto the sidewalk. That was bananas. That was bananas. When Shima and I asked Brian, like, what did the guy want? He said, I don't know, he probably just saw an opportunity. He was like, this is just what happens. Dolly's trying to do her job, open a new show, and somebody rushes in, tries to attach themselves to that so they can be heard. Actually, we don't know what the guy wanted. But her team did what they always do, circumvent disaster. Dolly seems to be able to do that time and time again, not just on red carpets. But countless times in her career, every political election, she manages to glide above the fray. So much so that we started calling her the great unifier. It's one of the through-line ideas of this series. But in these intensely divided times, can she do that much longer? Well, you know, people will always try to pull, um, you know, what her opinion is on, on certain politics or try to attach her to certain yeah. candidates. 
Well, there's a lot of pressure. People seem to be expecting a lot from me. and uh, But I figure I'm just, I can't think about that. You know, I hope I don't let people down. They've put me up on this pedestal. I hope sure. they don't knock me off of it. Truth is, the uh, expectations, the pedestal, it's not new. She's been navigating that for a while. But what has raised Dalitics to the level of an art. It's like judo. She is. She's, it's verbal judo. Is that she has sidestepped controversy, stayed above the fray, while standing at the center of a giant political movement that she wrote the anthem for that is still being used by politicians to this day. Okay. Go ahead. Hello. And that brings us to Karen. Uh, so my name is Karen Nussbaum. I um, and my title, that's tough, man. I am a founder of 9to5, the National Association of Working Women and Working America. And so as I understand it, this story begins for you in the early 70s with your friendship with Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, the most beautiful creature of the future. Is that right? That's right. Jane Fonda and I were both in the Indochina peace campaign. What was that exactly? In the early 70s, Good evening. Nixon had said, I've asked for this television time tonight. The war is over. Make public a plan for peace that can end the war in Vietnam. But it wasn't over. The American public is not being told the truth. Richard Nixon is telling us the war is over and the war is escalating. And Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden created an organization called the Indochina Peace Campaign. And it was to go back out into the public and say, we have a big responsibility here. And we, as political people, have to be sure that we don't ever stop. We have to bring it to an end. This campaign famously included Jane Fonda touring North Vietnam in 1972 and broadcasting messages of support to the communist forces that the U.S. was then fighting. Hanoi Jane would henceforth rank right up there with World War II enemy propagandists Tokyo Rose and Axis Salad. It's what would get her the label Hanoi Jane and make her, in some circles, the most hated woman in America. She will always be a traitor. The Hanoi Jane sucks. She needs to go down in history for what she is, the traitor. Okay, so as all of that was happening, Karen says she was in Boston organizing against the war. I thought of myself as an activist, but I also had to, you know, pay the rent. And so I had to get a job. And I ended up getting a job that was the most typical job for women, which was to be a a clerical worker. Remember, keep in mind, the 1970s is this moment when you have millions of women working for wages for the first time. This is Lane Windham, labor rights historian at Georgetown University. You can't overestimate just the level of change that was happening in the 70s, she says. Women until 1970, 73, 74, couldn't even get credit in their own name. They had to get a man or their brother or husband or whatever to get credit. Wow. That was the culture. Then she says you had a bunch of economic forces coming together, a bunch of civil rights legislation coming together, and suddenly 12 million women, like Karen, enter the workforce en masse. The single most common job for women to hold is a secretary or office clerical. And the women who held those positions were treated as the wife. You know, they were expected to get the coffee. Expected to, you know, be a sex symbol in the office. I wasn't thinking about it. It was really just, okay, this will bring in a paycheck every week. So Karen was at Harvard working as a typist, pretty much hating her job, but seeing it as a way to fund her activism. 
which had to do with the war and things happening out there. But then one day she's walking home from work and she passes by a restaurant. And actually what happened was there was a group of waitresses. Holding picket signs. There was just these eight working class waitresses who, you know, got hit on the butt one time too many or disrespected by the boss or whatever it was. And they decide that they're going to go on strike. Karen says she started to march with them and it was a light bulb moment. Like, oh, I could do activism about my work. So she gathered 10 clerical workers together. Working in different workplaces, a hospital, an insurance company, a publishing house, a a shoe factory. They formed a group, began to meet weekly, and after a few months... We decided to create a citywide organization uh, that we decided to call 9 to 5. Over the next couple of years... They created an office workers' bill of rights. We want these minimum standards implemented now. And launched at a, a big press conference. They did studies of, like, the publishing industry and the banking industry. The pay runs up to 40% less than men get for jobs at the same skill and effort level. There's also Phil Donahue. He had a popular TV talk show, Daytime. 9 to 5 used to do a an annual Bad Boss contest. Oh, they were so funny. They were hilarious. Okay, so, like, they would hold contests. Donahue would invite the 9 to 5 activists onto the show, and they would hold these big contests. We held a contest to determine the worst thing your boss makes you do. And they'd do it in a big public way. So, for instance... A winner was a man in a, who owned his own business. He was late for a meeting, and he had a rip in his pants right in the back of his pants, and he asked his secretary to sew the rip while he kept the pants on. He dropped his pants, and she sewed the rip. Uh, Give me some other winners, just briefly. Then there was the boss who required his secretary to vacuum up his nail clippings from the floor. He won the personal hygiene award. Oh, that makes my stomach turn. Right, and and then so they would have a bunch of women go deliver it to him in front of the news cameras. Okay, so Karen was doing all this, holding all these contests, filing all these lawsuits, fighting for equal pay. She had this movie star friend. Jane and I saw each other regularly as we worked on ending the war. You know, every time we would see each other, she would tell me stories about what the women office workers were up against. And it was exciting to her. Yeah. This is Jane Fonda, of course. One day, Jane just came to me and said, what if we made a movie? So Karen invites Jane to a meeting of 40 clerical workers that she'd organized. Jane brings some Hollywood people with her. One of them asked the women, have you ever dreamed of getting even with your boss? And the place lit up. They all had dreamed of getting even with their boss. Yes, I remember one, one, one woman said she imagined putting, cutting up her boss and putting him in a coffee grinder and then making drip coffee out of him. Wow. Another uh, fantasized breaking his knees with a bat as he walked by. I mean, they were... Oh, my God. You know, some of them were were so violent that we couldn't possibly use them in the movie. (laughs) But she says when she heard all those dark fantasies start spilling out... I thought, oh, my God, there it is. There's the movie. 20th Century Fox presents a tribute to anyone who has ever been overworked underpaid and pushed to the edge by an ungrateful boss. Quick refresher on the movie in case you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently. 9 to 5 is the story of three female office workers. Hi, this 
This is Violet. There's Violet. Welcome to the front line. Played by Lily Tomlin. There's Dora Lee. Like he told everybody I was sleeping with him. Played by Dolly Parton. And there's Judy. Well, look, couldn't we just all get together and and complain? Played by Jane Fonda. Let's face it, we are in a pink collar ghetto. So they've got this boss, Mr. Harp, who's played by Dabney Coleman, who demeans the female employees, openly harasses Dolly's character. Mr. Hart, told you before, I'm a married woman. I'm a married man. That's what makes it so perfect. And the story of the movie is these three women getting revenge. Get him and hunt him down. And it's, of course, hilarious and over the top. Uh, they inadvertently kidnap him. At one point, they string him up from the ceiling. One of the interesting things we learned is that the original script for the movie was way darker. A little closer in spirit to that 9 to 5 meeting. I mean, there was a cyanide scene written in, an electrocution scene. But Jane Fonda nixed that version because she felt that the only way the movie would work as a political vehicle was if it were a farce. You know, the way I think you make these kind of movies is you make a movie so that even if people don't want to deal with the issues that we're raising, they'll like the movie anyway because it's really funny. And as we know... A man in Hollywood, Jim Brown, goes behind the scenes of the movie 9 to 5 to find out what the office talk is. People did like the movie. It blew up. Jane remembers women shouting at the screen. But these were their stories, and I knew that the fact that we were putting their issues up on the screen this way would make a real difference. This was really the first national conversation about workplace harassment. It was like Me Too beta. And it allowed us to explode. Karen says 9to5 became a full-fledged union and added 20 local chapters almost immediately. It just took off like a rocket. Office workers all over the country felt empowered and uplifted and seen for the first time because of the movie. So now we come back to Dolly, who at this point had never been in a movie. No. And what gave you the idea to cast her? It went like this. During the process of development... She says she was driving home one day. I turned the radio on, and Dolly Parton was singing Two Doors Down. And I suddenly had a vision of Dolly as a secretary. Just the visual. You know, she can't see her hands. (laughs) (laughs) Typing with those long fingernails. Everything about it made me laugh. And I thought, wow, she's never been in a movie, even if she can, which I had no idea if she could or or not. I thought people would want to see the movie because of her. Uh, You know, I didn't realize how fabulous the choice would end up being. I wonder, was there any thought in your mind that like you're trying to deliver a message, like a political message in a movie, but you are a polarizing figure at this point, and that maybe she was a way to bridge to an audience that you wouldn't normally be able to reach? Well, I didn't say <laughs> that would have implied that I was smarter than I am and more strategic. <laughs> a real business person would have thought, oh, that would bring in the Southern demographic. That's a good business idea. No, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that way. Dolly, in her autobiography. She was very upfront about the fact that she thought I'd help the film do well in the South says the exact opposite. But as for what Dolly was thinking at the time... I'd like to thank all of you for coming this afternoon. I'm sure you knew... And she explained this at a press event on the day of the film's opening. Well, I was attracted to, to the idea of doing 9 to 5 because I had, I'd been looking through scripts for a few months. And so uh, it just seemed like it would be a good idea and working 
for the first time in a film with great people like Jane and Lily, I figured if it was a success that we would all enjoy, you know, the benefits. And if it was a flop, they could take the blame for it. <laughs> Dolly said in a very tongue-in-cheek sort of way, but she was very upfront about it, that she was making a political calculation. She knew that for her country music fans, appearing with Jane Fonda, Hanoi Jane, was risky. Because she's so outspoken and so political and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff she talks about I don't necessarily agree with, but then a lot of stuff she talks about I do. But I, I just thought, well, now this ought to be real interesting because uh, I'm also very opinionated in what I believe in, although I respect anybody's beliefs uh, and the fact that they're willing to stand up for whatever it is. But I'm also the kind of person that if I don't like where you got it, I can tell you where to put it. But, uh, but then she says the real reason that she agreed to do the movie to take that political risk was for the chance to write the music for the film. Because the music is most important to me, and I wouldn't have agreed to do 9 to 5 if I hadn't seen it as an outlet for my music, which, uh, you know, I, that part of my deal was to do the theme song. One day Dolly arrived on the set, and she said, Hey, y'all, come over here. I think I got a song for us. On the set, when we did that with Jane and Lily, I wear these... Uh, acrylic nails and And she used her fingernails like a washboard kind of you know keeping time rubbing her fingernails together clickety clickety click so i thought it sounded like a typewriter too so i'd do a tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen cup of ambition i love that line and i remember when i was writing that pour myself and i was going to say coffee and i thought a cup of ambition yeah (laughs) and i said high five and she sang the working nine to five And I mean, both Lily and I looked at each other and we had goosebumps mm. because we knew this was it and that it was going to be a huge hit and it would become a movement anthem. Oh, did you know that immediately? Yeah. Jane says from the moment she heard the song, she just knew this was the entire working woman's movement captured, that this was going to outlive the movie because it was all there. Yeah. It's yeah. When people thinking about, uh, think about working women or working, that's, that's the go-to song. And as for why it works so well. Nussbaum says it's a perfect anthem. Here's how Karen Nussbaum broke it down to Lynn Neary of NPR. She says, check out the sequence of ideas in the song. It starts with pride. Pour yourself a cup of ambition. And then it goes to grievances. They always take the credit. It then goes to class conflict. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder, and then it ends with collective power. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends. In the same boat with a lot of your friends. So in the space of this wildly popular song with a great beat, Dolly Parton just puts it all together all by herself. And it's and if you feel like you're, you know, the, the nine to five song is on a continuous loop in your brain. It's because you're hearing it all over the place. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. Please join me in welcoming the next president of the United States of America. Went to make her announcement that she was going to run for president. Elizabeth Warren. 
she was playing nine to five. Oh, I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan. I mean, what's not to love, right? Before her? The next president of the United States, Hillary Clinton. She was playing nine to five. But here's where you get to the dollitics of it all. You've got one of the great political protest songs of the last, I don't know, 50 years. You can debate me on that. I'll stand by it. It's a song that was born from a movie literally made to promote a union. And yet when Elizabeth Warren tried to use the song, Elizabeth Warren, who is a huge supporter of unions, Dolly's manager, Danny Nazelle, issued a statement saying, We did not approve this request, and we do not approve requests like this of a political nature. Coming up, we asked Dolly, what's really behind that? That refusal. And her answer? I gotta say it is stuck so deep in my head that I literally I've been thinking about it every day for the last 18 months. I'm Jad Abumrad. Dolly Parton's America will continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery. 50 high school senior girls descend on Mobile, Alabama every summer to compete for a massive cash prize. It isn't Survivor. It's one of America's most lucrative scholarship competitions for teen girls. It's been around for seven decades. Now you'll hear what took place behind the scenes. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery comes the competition. Host Shima Oliai was Nevada's contestant 20 years ago. Now she's returning as a judge to find out what two weeks with 50 of the country's most ambitious teens can tell us about girlhood in America. What happens when the competitors are thrown into the deep end with the best and brightest? And how does surviving the competition prepare them for everything that comes after? Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Dolly Parton's America. I'll admit that when I learned about 9 to 5, the labor movement and how it inspired 9 to 5, the movie, and how that gave birth to 9 to 5, the song, which probably right now is being sung at 95 different protests, I'll admit I was a little puzzled by the thing you hear often from Dolly and her team, which is that we don't do politics. We do not approve requests of a political nature. Well, isn't the song a political song? I mean, that that's where I was at. Wasn't sure what to make of this thing, which seemed like a contradiction to me. But then we got to talking about this one moment. Came up the first time uh, in the lobby of the Savoy Hotel in the UK talking to this guy. I'm Sam Haskell. He's one of Dolly's production partners. We produce movies together. We've done things for NBC, Lifetime. Netflix. We were sitting in the lobby and we started to talk about dollitics. How anytime a political subject comes up. She'll deflect and I'll give you a perfect example. We found ourselves nominated for Best Movie of the Year at the Emmys. TV is a vast wonderland. In 2017. The nominees for lead actress in a comedy series are... Well, it just so happened that... Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda were also nominated for Grace and Frankie. So I had this idea that I let become everybody else's idea, but I had this idea that we should have the three of them reunite for the first time since 9 to 5 because they're all three Emmy nominees at the same award show. That was your idea. That was my idea. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are again and still working at 9 to 5. Here are three of tonight's nominees, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and James Fonda. Well, if you'll remember, they came out with Dolly in the middle. Thank you. Oh, that's nice. Well, we appreciate that. 
and personally, I have been waiting for a nine to five reunion ever since we did the first one. Well, can you walk me through that moment from your perspective? Yeah. So it's Trump's been in office for about 10 months, nine months at this point. The three of you walk out. You're going to present an award for best supporting actor. Uh, first thing that happens is Jane Fonda says, I forget what it was. Well, it was a line actually from the movie line, uh, hypocritical. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Now, back in 1980 in that movie, we refused to be controlled by a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Really? And in, and in 2017, we still refuse to be controlled by a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. What? It was really the famous line from the show, 9 to 5, and a lot of people didn't know that, but they were using it in a roundabout way to uh, apply to to Donald Trump. Your eyes got really wide when they said it. Well, I didn't like it. And I had already told Jane Lilly, I said, now look, I'm not going to get into the politics of anything. So they wanted, they had, the writers had written up this whole stuff for us to say. I said, I'm not saying it. I don't do politics. I have too many fans on both sides of the fence. Of course, I have my opinion about everything. But I learned years ago to keep your mouth shut about things. I saw what happened to the Dixie Chicks. and. Uh, Let me just stop the tape for a second. When Dolly talks about what happened to the Dixie Chicks. Our love will never end, for the soldier to come back again. What she's referring to is something that happened in March of 2003. The Dixie Chicks were the highest selling female band of all time. They had a number one song. They were touring Europe. But then in London... Natalie Maines, the lead singer, is talking to the London crowd. And she says, Kind of hard to hear, but she says, We're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. She was referring to George W. Bush, who was from Texas, so were the Dixie Chicks. London crowd loves it. But... The London story was picked up by the Associated Press and printed in newspapers all over the United States. This was 18 months after 9-11 and just 10 days before the U.S. would invade Iraq. And how they could say I'm ashamed that the president's from Texas? Come on, man. Traitors, Dixie sluts, anti-America. I think they could send Natalie over to Iraq, strap her to a bomb, and just drop her over Baghdad. I never want to hear another Dixie chick song again. We're going to boycott them for their music, and we're going to boycott you for playing it if you do. Country radio overnight turns its back on the Dixie Chicks. As a result of statements made by members of the Dixie Chicks at a concert, two radio networks banned the Dixie Chicks from their playlist at a chain level. The Chicks' number one hit, Traveling Soldier, quickly fell from the top of the charts. Their record sales crashed, and their career kind of crashed too. All because of one split-second comment aimed at President Bush right before the war with Iraq. I have as many fans that are Democrats as I do Republicans. And you don't want to hurt anybody. And it's not my place to be doing that anyway. I'm an entertainer. That's what I said to them. I'm an entertainer. I am not up here to bash somebody else. So do y'all just do what you do. I'm not playing that game. Egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. 
So here's what happens. That being said, tonight we're here to recognize some men who conduct themselves with the utmost integrity. They're nominated for their extraordinary work in supporting roles. Right at this moment, Dolly steps in. Well, I know about support. (laughs) Hadn't been for good support. Well. Yeah, shocking off here would be more like Flopsy and Droopy. But, (laughs) and I, I think... Try to turn it around and make it kind of funny. And I, instead of doing that, I, like I say, I can always depend on a boob joke, you know, if I have to. That's why I got to lean back on them. Like I said, I don't know if I'm supporting them or they're supporting me. How about a shout out for Dabney Coleman out there? <laughs> Actually, I just, I'm here to have a good time tonight, and I'm just hoping. Well, congratulations on your nomination for your show. I'm just you too, hoping. By the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm just hoping that I'm going to get one of those uh, Grace and Frankie vibrators in my swag bag tonight. <laughs> think that's possible? Within just a few seconds, Dolly had disarmed the whole room. Anyway, here are the nominees for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or Movie. That whole night, they had just, everything was just bashing, you know, Donald Trump. And it wouldn't make any difference how I feel about him. I just thought, my God, you know, it's like and somebody, you know, just, why does it all have to be about politics? In the days after the Emmys, some people praised Dolly and how she sort of navigated the situation. She's done a very good job of keeping herself in the clean and the narrow. But she also came in for a fair amount of criticism from all angles. I want to talk briefly about the statements made by Hanoi Jane Fonda and Lily Liptarded Tomlin at last night's Emmy Awards ceremony. She knew what was going down. She knew what they were going to do. Parton stayed Silent. Does Dolly Parton support those statements made? Because I am a lifelong fan of country music, and I think that country music fans should be outraged. Some people on the left attacked her for not speaking out against President Trump. Others on the right attacked her for not speaking out for President Trump. Well, you could have upheld him. You should have said something. I thought, no, I shouldn't have said nothing. Because if I'd have said anything about Trump, anything good or bad... Or if I'd have said anything, just saying, well, you know, this or that, I'd have got booed out of that house. I'd have been probably up there on my own. But I didn't, I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't going to say anything good or bad, no matter what I thought or felt. I mm. just knew that I wasn't playing that game. Mm. It's just, but I want to be careful about that because people, you know, it's like, uh, anyway, it's, it's just scary. Yeah. You, no matter what you say is wrong. At this point, uh, Shima jumped in with a question. When, when you saw, when, when you're in a room and everyone's attacking this man, like Trump, d- because of your story of forgiveness, does it almost make you feel like you want to protect him? Yes. Your, what was your I feeling? I wanted to say, let's pray for the president. Yeah. Why don't we pray for the president? If we're having all these problems, let's just, you know... Why don't we just pray for Mr. President? <laughs> you know, it's like I wanted to say that, but I thought, no, keep your damn mouth shut. That won't work either. They don't, you know. So, mm. tit joke. When all else fails, be funny. Or try <laughs> to be funny. Wow, that's really interesting. So, I have to be honest, that moment messed me up. I kept thinking about it. You know, I mean, I came in thinking that her refusal to talk about Trump was probably mostly a business calculation. Like she has a lot that she needs to protect, including a massive charitable foundation. So you, I think we can all get that. 
But it's also easy to see that silence cynically, like a a refusal to speak truth just because it might hurt the bottom line. But when she said, Let's pray for the president. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, oh, no, 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 There's, that's not all that's happening here. I mean, this is not somebody who is denying the reality of America. If you just look at the 9 to 5 album itself. In addition to the song 9 to 5... You've got a song about the racist treatment of deportees. I'm just the coming man. And there's another labor rights song on there. In the dark dreary There's a song about the plight of mine workers dying in mines. Like she's been singing about political social issues since the 60s. We talked about this in episode one. So this is not someone who's in denial. But the Trump comment it made me realize, oh, I get it. She's saying her stake in the sand is that she will not cast anybody out. I thought back to those press conferences. When Dolly started working with Jane Fonda, her country music fans would boo when Jane's name came up. But in every press conference and interview, she would insist. But there is this sweet, gentle side in Jane that I think is, is so... Uh, it's so sweet and lovable. And it's a side that the public never sees, and I know that it's hard to believe, but she's, uh, she's a very caring person. I thought back to all our conversations about Porter Wagner. Yeah, I just finally just thought, I'm going to break myself if I don't go. This is a guy that would be really easy to turn into a cardboard cutout of a misogynistic ass who held her back. And frankly, I was going that direction in my questioning. There's a power thing happening, for sure. Well, it's more complicated sure. than that. Just think about it. He had had this show for years. He had. He didn't need me. She just refused to flatten the guy. He wasn't expecting me to be all And it seems suddenly clear to me that, yes, while there is a business logic here, this is also a spiritual stance. This is an ethos that she has chosen. And it is undeniably one of the reasons that she can have the fan base that she has because everybody feels safe at a Dolly Parton concert. Afterwards, um, you know, I realized that it had put Dolly perhaps in a, in a difficult situation um, because Dolly is not a political activist. Um, and, you know, many of her fans are Trump supporters. Mm. So I, I, th- I think it was awkward for her, and I felt bad about that. Did you talk about that with her afterwards? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember. But, you know, I, I heard that there, you know, there were, that there, there was some, you know, some of the fans objected to it. Yeah. And, you know, I very much respect Dolly's, um, she, she does have a very diverse fan base. She loves her fans, and, the, and her fans love her. I mean, I've been to her concerts where her fans are, you know, tears rolling down their face. I mean, there's a connection between Dolly and her fans, unlike any that I, I have ever seen in my life. And, wow. and she has to protect that. I'm in a very, very different place. Some people, there's almost a symbiotic relationship with fans. I, I'm not in that situation. It's very different for me. 
tried to tuck my waist in, but I don't think I'm ever going to do it like you. Well, you good. We're just about the same size. Gorgeous lighting, whoever did it. Thank you. Hi. Telephone's off if you're new to the party. Back in London, a couple hours before the uh, physical knife situation on the red carpet, we got to watch Dolly continually fend off other more veiled attempts to pin her down on politics. What do you think, you know, without naming names, there are people in politics who might talk about women in less favorable terms than others, grabbing them by certain parts of their anatomy. I mean, do you think that kind of language is useful or helpful in American politics these days? Anytime the president came up, which was often. Uh, what, what, what people do to each other? I'm sorry, I didn't get the first part of it. Um, in, well, I'm talking about President Trump, trying to sort of alluding oh. to him in the language he talks about grabbing women by certain parts of their anatomy. Oh, I'm mean, not even going to talk about any of that stuff because I refuse to talk. I just think people should treat everybody with respect. Every time Trump came up, Dolly shut it down. And it did make me think... At this moment, when like even having cereal somehow becomes about President Trump, is it even possible to do what she's trying to do? Is it even okay? I think this code of silence is what's keeping women down. Just days after we returned from that UK trip, Stella Parton, Dolly's sister, who's also a recording artist, appeared on a podcast called Our Stories and spoke with a woman named Adrena Austin. And I find that is very disheartening to me. Basically pointed a finger at her sister. My sister should speak out more. I Mm -hmm. honestly call her out. Mm -hmm. She should speak out more. And I'm ashamed Mm -hmm. of my sister for keeping her mouth shut. She can run it all day long when it's Mm -hmm. about something Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Well, speak up against injustice. Now, who is your sister, just for people who, who may not know? Dolly Parton. Speak up. You know, it's like we've just divided. It's just tore my own family apart, this political stuff. We can't even have a, a, a nice dinner like we used to have. We'd laugh about things that was going on, something going on in the family or some jokes or, or whatever. Now everybody's arguing about politics. And I said, can we just stop and eat? Let's stop. Don't do that. We don't need to talk about that now. Shima jumped in with one more question. Sometimes when I don't speak up, People get hurt because I don't say what needed to be said. Do you ever feel like by not opposing, like maybe it is hurting others or you could be taking other people's pain away? Do you ever worry about that or think about that? No, because I know that when the time comes, I will speak out. I have a great sense of timing and that's always worked in my favor. That's why I say I don't just join the marches. I don't just join the the group, I know that my time will come, and hopefully when it does, I will say my piece. When she said that, I thought, When would be a good time to speak? What would need to change? What would she say? How would we hear it? Would we hear it? I thought about a Quaker meeting I'd gone to once with a friend where they tell you to wait in silence until the inspiration compels you to speak. And so you wait for something to happen. Then I thought about her music, which never seems to wait. It just comes in this unending stream and she channels that stuff. 
So in lieu of her saying her piece, we certainly have her singing it. Dolly Parton's America was produced, written, and edited by me and Shima Oliai, brought to you by Awesome Audio, that's OSM Audio, and WNYC Studios. We had production help from W. Harry Fortuna, original music by Leroy Anderson, the typewriter, used with the permission of Woodbury Music Company. Thanks to the folks at Sony. Special thanks to Peter at HarperCollins, Lynn Sacco. Huge thanks to Pat Resnick, Karen Nussbaum, and her archives at Wayne State University. Sam Shahi, David Dotson, Pat Walters, Lulu Miller, Susie Lechtenberg, and Soren Wheeler. Thanks as always to my dad. I also want to take this moment to thank Dolly Parton and Danny Nazelle and the entire crew for being so generous with their time. They did not have to spend the amount of time that they spent with us. They did not have to answer all of our sometimes very annoying questions. But they did, and we are grateful. We've partnered with Apple Music to bring you a companion playlist that will be updated each week with music you'll hear in the episode, plus some of our favorites. You can find that on our website at dollypartonsamerica.org. Next week on Dolly Parton's America. You got, I said, look, I'm a writer. Jolene's a whore. We take a Dolly classic and turn it on its head. I got my little melodica. <laughs> Oh, I love that verse. It's so good. Oh. That's coming up next week on Dolly Parton's America.